Well, good morning. We're continuing in our series on the Minor Prophets. Today we're going to be looking at the words of Zephaniah. Uh, this is chapter 1, verse 6, so right at the beginning of the book of Zephaniah. And it says this, I will destroy those who used to worship me, but now no longer do. Chapter 1 of Zephaniah is crystal clear that the people of Judah had turned in their hearts against, uh, against God. But I think that this is really a hard message for us to think about today in our, in our world and in our culture. Human beings, we, we tend to think that we deserve all of God's blessings. That we deserve God to, to give us everything that our life should be perfect, but it's not often the case. I think sometimes our culture gets upset when they read about God being judgmental. But I think we have to realize God is responding to the rebellious actions of the people of Judah. And this is nothing new. The world hates to admit it, but human beings have always been inclined to sin. So I want to kind of just look back a little bit at, at biblical history and world history to show you uh, what I mean. If you look back at Adam and Eve, they were the first people that rebelled against God. Then their son Cain committed the first murder. By Genesis chapter 6, the entire human race had twisted and perverted sexuality and, and God sent a flood because of that. By Genesis 11, mankind had become arrogant and they built the Tower of Babel to try and reach the heavens because of pride. In Genesis 27, if you remember the story of Joseph, his brothers sold him into slavery because they were jealous. In Exodus 1, we see the wicked Egyptian pharaoh he enslaved God's people and treated them cruelly, forcing them into backbreaking work, a form of injustice. So that's sort of the Old Testament, a flyover. But if you go to the New Testament, you see that when Jesus was first born, King Herod issued a decree to get rid and kill all the firstborn men, firstborn boys, to get rid of Jesus. Then in all the accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the betrayal of Jesus, the arrest of Jesus... And eventually the, the crucifixion of Jesus is presented as the perfect Messiah, innocent, killed because of sin. Then in Acts, we see the persecution of the church. So Peter and the other apostles started spreading the, the word of God and they were persecuted. Stephen was stoned. In church history, if we keep going through, we see the church did at times abuse its power. The church uh, acted in ways that did not honor God, just like they were doing in the nation of Judah at this time. And then if you fast forward a lot of years, all the way going up until 1914, you guys uh, will remember World War I started. As a result, many of Europe's regimes were destroyed, communism arose, fascist dictatorships dominated in countries like Italy and Germany. And then a little while later, 1939, World War II happens. And World War II happens because of sin, because of sharp rivalries. During the Great Depression, and dictators like Hitler and Stalin rose in power, and they oppressed millions of people, especially the Jews. In the 1960s, America faced the Civil Rights Movement, and we all know that many minorities are still sort of recovering from the effects of that. And then we come to today. The greatest world wars might have ended, but across the globe, I think various conflicts still exist. Today, wicked leaders like Vladimir Putin bomb apartment buildings with civilians. 
Today, Christians all across the world in Iran and China and India are being persecuted for professing faith in Jesus Christ. Here in Bowling Green, kids and children are mistreated and neglected. People are abusing drugs. Alcohol sales have risen and church attendance has dropped. Because if we look back at biblical history and world history, I think one thing is clear. Human beings do not deserve God's grace. The whole human race has turned away from Yahweh or from God. And that's exactly what's being communicated from the, the outset of Zephaniah 1. They used to worship it, but they no longer do. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Psalm 14.1-3 says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if anyone seeks after God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become corrupt. There's none who does good. Not even one. Zephaniah chapter 1, 4 through 6 goes on to say that they started worshiping false gods and, and fake idols. That's what the people in this culture that Zephaniah was speaking to, that's what they were doing. They were turning from God and worshiping these statues or these false idols. But what else did the people of Judah do to disqualify them from being worthy of God's grace? Chapter 1, 8 through 9, so a little bit later in chapter 1, it says that the rulers and leaders of Judah had failed to lead the nation in righteousness. So if you look at some of the, the, uh, the kings of Judah, if you go back and look at their history, it was pretty checkered past. Instead, they allowed for pagan customs and rituals to influence the people, and it led people away from God. The culture was heading away from God. If you go back to 2 Kings 21, 1-3, King Manasseh, the former king of Judah, was wicked. He sacrificed his own son in a fire. He practiced divination. He sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. And he was supposed to be the king of Judah. He's following other gods. But what else does Zephaniah say about the behavior of Judah? Well, in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1, he talks about the merchants or people that were selling things in the marketplace, people that were selling things that everyday citizens needed. And the merchants were ripping people off. They were scamming people. They were overcharging and oppressing because they had the ability to do that. And, and Zephaniah is calling them out. They lied and cheated and taken advantage of the poor. But chapter 2, so that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 continues to show us just how undeserving God's people were of His grace. The first three, chapters of, first three verses of chapter 2 are a national call to repentance. It's like as if Zephaniah was projecting this with a megaphone to the whole nation. Zephaniah commands people to repent and seek the Lord because so many of them were seeking Baal or Milcom or Molech, these other gods. And so it's a national call to repentance. Then chapter 2, verses 4 through 15 is kind of like one large legal indictment on the surrounding nations. As we saw in the video, there were these other nations surrounding the people of Judah. And the Lord lists out a myriad of ways in which they had also walked away from God. So I think the point there was that it wasn't just Judah, it was other surrounding nations. So this is Zephaniah 2, 9, and then verses 13 through 14. He says this, Moab and Ammon, so other surrounding nations, 
will be destroyed. Destroyed is completely as Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament were wiped off the face of the earth because of sexual immorality. And Zephaniah is saying that's going to happen to these surrounding nations, Moab and Ammon. And then 13 and 14, the Lord will strike the lands of the north with his fist, destroying the lands of Assyria. He will make its great capital Nineveh. So remember Nineveh from when we talked about Jonah. A desolate wasteland, parched like a desert. The proud city will become a pasture for flocks and herds, and all sorts of wild animals will settle there. So the first two chapters of Zephaniah show example after example after example of how undeserving and how unworthy God's people were of redemption and restoration. By all accounts, they had blown it. Now you might be thinking, this is a little bit of a depressing sermon on a Sunday morning. It's beautiful outside. And surely Zephaniah is going to lighten the mood here in chapter 3. And he does later. But chapter 3 starts out just as bad. This is what it says in the first four verses of chapter 3. What sorrow awaits rebellious, polluted Jerusalem, the city of violence and crime. No one can tell it anything. It refuses all corrections. It does not trust or draw near to its God. Its leaders are like roaring lions hunting for their victims. Its judges are like ravenous wolves at evening time, who by dawn have left no trace of their prey. Its prophets are arrogant liars seeking their own gain. Its priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instruction. So Zephaniah, in chapters 1 through 3, the first part, 3a, Zephaniah painted a picture for us of how undeserving they were of God's mercy. He described the nation as polluted. He called it a city of violence and crime. He said it refuses correction, sort of like a rebellious teenager. He said that the political, social, and religious leaders were like animals, only looking out for themselves and taking advantage of the weak. And probably worst of all, in verse 4, it's priests defile the temple by disobeying God's instruction. So the very people, the very people that were supposed to bear the image of God in a special way and represent God to the community, the priests, the people who were supposed to administer the sacraments and preach the word, explain the law, they were defiling God's temple. So chapters 1 through 3a of the book of Zephaniah are like an indictment against these people groups. Zephaniah lays it all out there because he wants us to see what their sin had done to them. He wants us to see just how unmerited God's grace is. So if all of us have sinned and we've all turned away from God, which we have, then why does God still offer love? It's called grace. Grace is when God shows love to those who don't deserve it. Grace is when God forgives a convicted criminal. Grace is when God forgives a prostitute or a hypocrite. Look at your own life and, and think about the gospel in terms of how did you live before you were a Christian? Did you ever disobey God's law? Did you ever trample over God's commands? Because I know I did. Did you ever mistreat someone or put yourself first for personal gain? Or did you ever break one of the Ten Commandments? Had you ever lied about something you really had no good reason to lie about? 
If you answered yes to any of these questions, you've just proven Zephaniah's point in chapters 1 through 3a. Nobody deserves God's grace. Even mature Christians make mistakes. Pastors and elders occasionally lose their way. We fail to tame our tongues. But the point is, we've all sinned. We all stand before a holy God with stains. We stand before God falling short of the mark. But it's people like you and me that God decides to show His grace to. God loves to show His grace to people who are weak and needy and broken. So Zephaniah chose to put the good news at the end of his book in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. So chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 are about the free, unmerited love of God in salvation for people who don't deserve it. So you could essentially say chapter 3 of Zephaniah is the gospel in the Old Testament. Somebody uh, said that Zephaniah 3.17 is like John 3.16, and we'll get to that in a second. But I think we really do see some pretty amazing blessings for believers in these verses. So the first thing is God will restore undeserving people. Verse 9 and 10, it says this, Then I will purify the speech of all people so that everyone can worship the Lord together. My people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will present their offerings and come to present their offerings to me. This idea of God purifying their speech means much more than Him improving their vocabulary. This speaks of purification from the inside out that's been accomplished by God Himself. God is the one saying He's going to do this. To be purified means to be cleansed. And purification of our souls happens when we're forgiven by Jesus Christ. The old us is gone and the new us is here to stay. So God's saying that He's going to change the hearts of His people to the degree that even their speech is refined. And then they're going to speak words of wisdom and grace. He says, I'm going to purify the speech of all people. God restores and purifies the speech of undeserving people like you and like me. So we can come before His presence. We can sing songs. That's what we just did when Mark was leading us in worship. The Holy Spirit has come inside of our hearts and He's purified our speech if we're following Christ. Verse 10, it says, My scattered people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia will come to present their offerings. As God is gathering people to Himself, He's doing it from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. He's gathering people who live beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. And He's gathering people to bring offerings of praise. So if we look in Revelation 7, verse 9, it says this. This is John writing this vision he had. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, and they held palm branches in their hands. God is restoring a people to Himself, a people from every nation of the world, a people who don't deserve this, all because He loves them, and He wants to show them His grace. So if you're a follower of Christ, and you get to heaven, you will be overwhelmed by God's grace. As you gaze across a sea of people from every nationality, as you hear people singing praises in languages you didn't even know existed, it's because God will restore undeserving people. The second thing is that God will preserve the dignity of undeserving people. It says, on that day you will no longer need to be ashamed. 
for you'll no longer be rebels against me. You know, you and I and the people of Judah, if we deserve anything, it's, it's shame for how we've treated God. Through constant and persistent disobedience, complacency, and rebellion, humans have all run away from God and trampled on His Word. But God has been even more persistent in His pursuit of showing grace to a people. God showed grace so much so that He paid the ultimate price that our shame could be taken away. So because of Christ's work on the cross, our shame is erased. Because of His sacrifice, our nakedness and our guilt is removed. That's why it says we can stand in the Holy of Holies because of Christ. So if you look at the, the word ashamed, it makes me think of Romans 8.1. It says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So we don't have any need to be ashamed before God. Hebrews 2.11 says this, So now Jesus and the ones He makes holy have the same Father. That's why Jesus is not ashamed to call them His brothers and sisters. So when Jesus looks at those who put faith in Him, He's not ashamed of their sins. The people of Judah were given this promise by God centuries before the cross. What an amazing Heavenly Father we have who not only gathers us from all corners of the earth, but He clothes us and feeds us and welcomes us and tells us we don't need to be ashamed. So God is going to restore, preserve dignity, but He's also going to renew undeserving people. You think about the word renew, it means to make new. I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. There will be no more haughtiness or pride on my holy mountain. Those who are left will be the lowly and humble for it is they who trust in the name of the Lord. The people of Judah could have been described as proud, arrogant, and selfish in chapters 1 through 3a. But here in chapter 3b, God is promising that He will renew His bride. Part of that renewing is giving His people a gentle and a lowly spirit that doesn't think too highly of itself. Someone who's arrogant and, and proud is really deep down, they're foolish. They're foolish because the proud and arrogant refuse to trust the Lord of the universe. The proud and the arrogant refuse to trust in Jesus Christ because in their minds they have it all figured out. So the kings of Judah had been proud. The merchants in Judah had been proud. The priests in Judah had been self-centered and they profaned the temple. But God declares, in the midst of all that, I will remove all proud and arrogant people from among you. We know that those who truly follow Christ have a humble spirit. Every one of you could probably, in your mind, or go around the room and share an example of somebody in the church that showed grace to you in a spirit of humility. This comes from the Holy Spirit. As we prayed this morning, we're talking about growth and from the Holy Spirit. But 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Then Jesus in Mark 35, He was speaking to, Mark 9.35, He was speaking to His disciples and they were all sitting around. He said this, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. All Christians must be marked by humility. But this is only possible by the grace of God because it runs so counterintuitive to our nature. And it's only possible because God has promised to renew His people despite their pride. Fourth thing is God will renew 
undeserving people, but He will also protect undeserving people. So this is in 14 and 15. So, we'll go back just a little bit. So verse 13, The remnant of Israel will do no wrong. They will never tell lies or deceive one another. They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. So, we look at the idea of God protecting an undeserving people. It says, this is, I don't have it up here, I messed up on that, but this is verse 13 of Zephaniah 3. It says, they will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. So, I had this question, do you ever feel exhausted in your life? Like, do you ever get home from work and just feel exhausted and tired and worn out? Or maybe it's more of a spiritual exhaustion that you have. It's because we live in the fallen world. We live in a world where creation is groaning and our hearts are aching for heaven. So again, I don't have it up here, but verse 13, it says, They will eat and sleep in safety, and no one will make them afraid. So then, ask this question to you. How is this rest possible for us? How can we enter into a day in heaven when we don't have any pain or any suffering? How are we able to get there? Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament answers that for us. It says, He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's past to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on Him the sins of us all. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but He was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush Him and cause Him grief. So who paid the, sins, or who paid the price for our sins so that we can enjoy eternal rest with God? Jesus was despised and rejected. He was pierced for our rebellion, and it was God's plan to crush him. Isaiah 54, five, 4 through 5 says this Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there is no more disgrace for you. We have to realize that the people of Judah, although it was an ancient world, their world was still busy and chaotic, just like our world is today. It was chaotic and busy and corrupt, but the Lord promised them eternal rest if they were faithful. They turn back to Him. If you want to think about a good picture of rest, I would point you to Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to His name. So do you have this rest? Do you want this rest? Because only God can give this kind of rest. And He gives it to people who don't deserve it. So then we get to the, the fifth thing in 14 and 15. That God will protect undeserving people. So I want to highlight that word protect. Because we all have enemies. Especially Judah in the Old Testament. They had surrounding enemies. And we have our own enemies today. Namely Satan. But it says this. And it's... it's, uh, it's Declaring good news, it says, Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord will remove His hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy. And the Lord Himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. At last your troubles will be over. You will never again fear disaster. So this is a promise that God's going to protect 
people who don't deserve His protection. So why does He tell them to sing? Why does, why does it say, Sing, O daughter of Zion, be glad and rejoice, shout? Why is there a command there to sing? What is the cause for the celebration? Well, it says that the Lord, the King of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the King of Kings, will disperse the armies of your enemies. Ancient Israel and ancient Judah, they had enemies, but what about us? Of course, our enemy is the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness, Satan. So what promise of protection does God give to you? What promise of protection does God give to me as we go through our Monday to Saturday week? What promise of protection do we have? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says this, Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could He die. And only by dying could He break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could He set free all those who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So what's our cause for celebration? Jesus Christ has defeated the enemy. He defeated death in the grave. And He broke the bondage of sin that Satan had over us if we trust in Christ. He's already defeated the biggest enemy if we trust in Christ. So when you go through life and you're scared or you're anxious or you're worried, we can trust and remember the faithful promises that God offers to those who will simply turn back to Him. So now we come to the final verses of the book of Zephaniah. And Zephaniah has honestly, it's been mostly doom and gloom in chapters 1 through 3a and sober warnings and judgments except for the last part of chapter 3 which we've been talking about, these promises of God. But I, I honestly can't think of a more beautiful image in Scripture than the one we're about to read. So, this one is, God will sing over undeserving people. In verse, verses 16 through 20. <clears throat> On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid. For the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With His love, He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I will gather you who mourn for the appointed festivals. You will be disgraced no more. And I will deal severely with all who have oppressed you. I will save the weak and helpless ones. I will bring together those who were chased away. I will give glory and fame to my former exiles, wherever they've been mocked and shamed. On that day, I will gather you together and bring you home again. I will give you a good name, a name of distinction, among all the nations of the earth. As I restore your fortunes before their very eyes, I, the Lord, have spoken. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, then the verses we just read describe in a very encouraging way what you have to look forward to. Verses 16 through 20 show us how God will sing over His people who don't deserve it. Verse 17, it says, He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. Can you think of a more sweet and a more powerful truth in your life? That the same God who said, let there be life, let there be light. The same God who said, I'm going to create man in my image, also says He's going to sing over you. The same God that said, it is finished, is also going to sing it as well. So 
So what song will be? What, what song is he going to sing? What what song is he going to sing in heaven? We know that heaven is going to be filled with singing. We know that the bride of Christ, so Christians will sing to God. We know that a hundred million angels will sing to Christ, and it's going to be filled with singing. But this says that God will sing over His people and rejoice. Then verse 20, it says, On that day I will gather you and bring you home again. So do you ever feel homesick as a follower of Christ? Like you're wandering through a strange land and you feel like you're a stranger? Do you ever long for the heavenly city? 1 Peter 2.11 says, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires. Psalm 84, 1-2, it says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. David says, I long and faint to enter the courts of the Lord. But Zephaniah 3.20 says, On that day I will gather you together and bring you home again. Part of God's grace to His people is bringing sinners home safely. So we all remember that famous parable Jesus told in Luke 15. The parable of the prodigal son. We remember that story where it says that the, uh, the prodigal was returning home and the father was looking. Maybe he was looking out the door, standing outside the door, anxiously waiting for his son to come home. I think that's the image we see here in Zephaniah that God has for Judah. He's like a father waiting for his son to come home or waiting for his daughter to come home. And he's sitting there and he's waiting and he just wants them to come home. It says, But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf that we've been fattening. We have to celebrate. Because he was lost and now he's found. Finally, the last verse in the book, the last verse of the entire book is Zephaniah. It says this there at the bottom. I, the Lord, have spoken. So why does he end it this way? This phrase literally means Yahweh has spoken. These three words affirm that God will bring all of these things to pass. These three words are like a seal at the end of Zephaniah of God's promise to those who will repent and trust in Him. So the good news of Zephaniah is that God has promised to show His grace to undeserving people. He promises to restore Redeem, protect, renew, give rest, and bless undeserving people who trust in Jesus Christ for all eternity. The truth is, if you're going through your life right now and you, there's someone in your life that you, you know they're not following Christ. And you're starting to doubt if they ever will. Remember this, God can save people like Adam and Eve. The people who brought sin into the world. God can save people like Cain. A murderer who killed his brother in cold blood. God can save people like Joseph's jealous, greedy brothers who stabbed Joseph in the back and sold him into slavery. God has the power to save evil leaders like Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, and the wicked kings of Judah. So in closing, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do in light of this amazing, undeserved blessing in our life that God offers to us? Hear the words of Zephaniah 2, 2 through 3, as the command from God from this passage. Gather before judgment begins, 
before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Act now, before the fiery fury of the Lord falls and the terrible day of the Lord's anger begins. Seek the Lord, all who are humble, and follow His commands. Seek to do what is right and to live humbly. In light of these amazing, undeserved blessings, God calls us to seek Him in humility. Let's pray. God, we come before You in awe of how You're able to gather a people to Yourself and redeem even the most sinful people and transform them into treasures of Your grace. God, each of us stand before You now guilty of sins that we've committed this week. We've acted on unrighteous impulses and we've thought unrighteous thoughts, God. But You're faithful and just to forgive us of all sin if we confess that sin to You. Father, thank You for sending Your Holy Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to bear the judgment and the punishment that we deserved. God, we scratch our heads and we marvel at Your grace. We cannot comprehend how wide and how deep and how vast Your love truly is. So God, help us this week to trust You that You're going to restore us, that You're going to preserve us, that You will renew us, that we don't have to renew ourselves, God, that through Your Holy Spirit, God, You're going to give us rest that You will protect us, and that You will sing over us. Help us, God, to remember that we can never earn Your grace. Help us, God, to keep sharing the Gospel with those in our families and our neighborhoods who don't know You. Help us to enjoy You and glorify You as we look forward to the day that we will see You face to face. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.